Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. It's the holidays, a time to look back on this truly dysfunctional year. It's also a time to look forward to what we can only hope will be a happier new year. Scott McCartney, travel editor for the Wall Street Journal, stops by with his thoughts for the year we just survived, as well as the year upcoming. Then we'll hop across the pond to talk to Simon Calder from The Independent in London for the latest on the holiday mess and confusion in Europe. And when it comes to restaurants and food, my go-to person has always been the legendary writer and critic, Ruth Reichel. She's got a lot to say about the current state of restaurants and whether there's any hope for their owners, the chefs, or even foodies like us. First up, Scott McCartney. Let's talk about what's been going on this year and what lessons we've learned and maybe what changes there are happening in our behaviors when it comes to travel. And who best to talk about that than the travel editor of the Wall Street Journal, one of our regulars on The Travel Detective on PBS, and a regular on this show, Scott McCartney. Hey, Scott. Hey, Peter. So happy almost um, Christmas and Hanukkah to you. And and uh, I guess the question is, I'm seeing a definitive change in some traveler behavior. Uh, I'm seeing it when when people are no longer making just a destination choice as a vacation destination, but they're making it as a lifestyle destination choice. Uh, I'm seeing people willing to make huge changes in their lifestyle simply by moving, physically moving out of the city permanently to other locations. And we're not talking about all the stunts that some countries are doing, saying, come work here remotely for a year, because not everybody can do that, uh, especially with kids in school and everything else. But I'm talking about people moving out of Los Angeles maybe 200 miles away to a small town. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about people in New York who, who are you know, flooding the real estate market out in Long Island, and I'm not talking about the Hamptons, who just want to get out of the city. Uh, and then, of course, there's the whole concept of how do we redefine or reinvent uh, business travel. Look at how the airlines have had to change their pricing model and their seat configurations, even their, even their frequency, based on the absence, I mean, the, not just the noticeable absence, the overwhelmingly noticeable absence of business travel. So what are you seeing? So I think that's all exactly right. Um, 
I actually got involved in a research project uh, with some other um, aviation veterans, one a former CEO, one a consultant, one a consumer advocate, and we had sort of formed a support group of sorts and were meeting weekly and got frustrated that there wasn't really good data out there about what kind of impact, permanent impact there would be on business travel. Um, so we decided to do it ourselves, and we we looked really hard at the purposes of business travel. Um, wh- why are people going? Is it a sales call? Is it a convention? Is it a internal company meeting, a training session, things like that? And, and and we sort of scoured a whole lot of surveys and data, and put together seven different categories, and and made estimates on what could be replaced by technology. Um, we've already seen companies say, uh, hey, we've developed efficiencies. Um, the the online communications works to some extent for some purposes. And, and so I think you're going to see uh, a lot of travel be replaced by technology and, and a lot of travel just not be practical. Companies that have decentralized and and have have, you know, they no longer have a central headquarters. They've They've told their people not to come back to headquarters, and and that's going to be a lasting change. Um, So we came up with some numbers. Um, The estimates were uh, that uh, between 19 and 36 percent of all business travel trips are gone permanently. And and that's a huge blow to some big airlines that really rely on that. And as you said, it's going to change their pricing. It's going to change their frequencies may even change the frequent flyer programs that are so geared toward to towards rewarding big spenders. If you just lost a third of your big spenders, it really changes the business. Well, let's talk about that one third, because that was the model the airlines relied on, right? You know, you could fill the coach section of a plane and still not be in profit. Conversely, you could fill the business class section of the plane and have coach entirely empty and be in profit. So you lose one third of your heavy spending business travelers, what's your plan B? Yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting. As, as you say, um, the business travelers in the front of the airplane have basically subsidized the low fares in the back of the airplane. Um, and so what happens? Um, the, uh, you would think, well, uh, airlines are gonna wanna raise uh, coach fares, um, raise leisure ticket prices. Uh, because they don't have as much revenue coming from the front of the airplane. Um, and, but that's really hard to do. About 20% of U.S. airline capacity is with low fare carriers, and, and they're sitting in the catbird seat. They're, they're not going to be anxious to raise fares. And so big airlines like United, Delta, American, they're going to feel like they have to match prices of the low-cost guys. It, it's also with leisure travel, you know, we're all very price-sensitive. So you can't push prices up too much. People just won't go or they'll go to a different destination. So it becomes a really difficult problem. And the and I think the ultimate answer for airlines is they're going to have to cut costs. You're right about the low fare carriers, because in this in the wake of this pandemic, what we've seen is while American United and Delta are at least announcing, if not actually acting on those announcements of reducing cities, taking cities off their route maps, uh, the spirits, the frontiers, the allegiance are adding routes. Uh, Frontier announcing 19 new routes, so Southwest adding 10 new routes in a year. That's never been the Southwest Airlines model. And that's that gives you an indication of where they think there's an opportunity. 
Yeah, I was actually talking to somebody at Southwest recently. You know, it used to be that if they could open two cities in a year, that was a big deal. Um, and some years they they had to do nothing. And, and, and they're doing doing well more than 10. They're doing small cities at uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And they're going back to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, the, the things that they, you know, they really never would have done before. But they're sort of desperate for traffic and they have airplanes they have people um why not they're going wherever they can uh and it's not not just in the u.s uh, uh volaris a, a mexican carrier um they've upped their market share 40 percent in the in the pandemic by expanding like crazy um and, and even in into the u.s especially into the u.s they they now serve Mexico City. They could never get slots in Mexico City before. So they're flying from Mexico City to Dallas, to Los Angeles, to to, to other places. There's just there is going to be a lot more low fare capacity, and I think they you know they fly to, to the places that people want to go now. The most amazing thing about Volaris is for those people in Southern California who understand the cross border express and just walking over that bridge to the Tijuana airport. If you fly out of Tijuana on Valeris, in many cases, you can fly from Tijuana to New York with just one stop for like $73. I mean, that be, that opens up an entirely new market to people who couldn't afford it before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the, these guys, um, they've done a really interesting job growing um, when everybody else is shrinking. Uh, and rolling the dice. Um, you know, this is a time when a lot of companies feel like they needed to to pull in, to conserve cash, to to uh, reduce their losses. And we've seen other airlines uh, say, hey, we can, uh, it's it's squatters' rights. We can now go places that we couldn't go before. E- even in the U.S., Southwest going into Chicago O'Hare, Miami International, places that Southwest never would have gone before. But they're there to stay, and that's going to make a difference in the competitive landscape. Domestically, take a look at the American Transcon model, the flights that they used to do between Los Angeles and New York. Those are the movie star flights. It was a three-class service, right? Name another three-class service on any other route in America. Generally, you don't find it. But LA to New York, you do because of all the contracts that they had with the Screen Actors Guild, AFTRA, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, which required their members doing movies to fly first class. Well, they're not in production right now. And so American goes from having maybe 10 flights a day in each direction down to two in each direction. They've, they basically park their planes that had the three-class service and substitute it with, with 777-200s that only have business and coach. And there goes that model right out the window. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I actually think the, the small plane three-class service um, may have a future in the rebound. Um, American can offer more frequencies with lower traffic volumes than uh, Delta or United can with the, the wide bodies that Delta and United were using before the pandemic. Um, so American may actually have, have you know, in some ways, a better model for the transcon market. Um, what's, what'll be really interesting to see is whether um, uh, both corporate travelers and leisure travelers feel that uh, the extra space of uh, first class of a, of a individual seat, um, seat to yourself that you can get in that three-class model, whether that gives you extra protection. And and people are going to want that uh, because they don't want a seatmate who might be infected. 
You know, we talk about business travel, one third of that may be gone. International travel for business travelers, nobody's expecting that to come back before the second or third quarter of 2021. And then, of course, there's the hotel component. All those hotels that were built next to convention centers, all those hotels that were business traveler hotels, all those hotels that basically serviced a a community that would maybe spend maybe 2.3 nights on every trip there and and, and in and out, what are they going to do? How do they pivot? It's really tough. I I do think some convention um, business will come back. Conventions are really efficient ways uh, for people to uh, see clients, check up on competitors, network, and things like that. Um, It's the hotels that are, you know, next to the headquarters of the company uh, that just uh, told two-thirds of its people to work from home. Um, and and that's going to be a permanent change. How, how are you going to go visit your client if nobody's at the headquarters? Well, you don't need don't need the hotel anymore. Um, a lot of uh, you know, I I just think uh, with reduced business travel, um, a lot of hotels are going to have to repurpose themselves. Um, you know, there may be hotels in downtown business areas uh, that become more leisure hotels, and they and they market themselves more, and they and they work towards packages that involve museums and and uh, special events and concerts and and things like that. We may see a lot more opportunity. Uh, for leisure travelers to get great deals in at urban business hotels um, because they don't have as much business traffic anymore. Although I would think in the process, these hotels would have to radically alter their floor plan, look at their capacity levels, uh, redesign or reschedule their gyms and their health clubs, uh, figure out whether or not they could ever reopen their restaurants and maybe just keep the kitchen open. I mean, it may change what we normally think of as a normal routine at a hotel. Yeah, that's exactly right. And housekeeping too. Uh, You know, the the current um, uh, thing right now is no housekeeping service, right? But then you get a thorough cleaning when you check out of the room. Uh, but you don't want somebody in the room while you're staying there. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's probably going to be a permanent change. I, th- I think that uh, that will be the same. It may also be that um, people just don't want room service anymore um, or that the that the breakfast buffet is gone. Uh, there, there are going to be a lot of changes um, in the hotel business. And, you know, they've gone to extremes um, during the pandemic. Some hotels have learned a lot by housing um, hospital workers who, who have come into hotspot areas. And, uh, and you know, they've uh, helped them perfect their, their cleaning uh, protocols and things like that. Um, I think a lot of that will continue, but it's still unclear how they're going to make money. We've got to also talk about the rental car business because if people aren't traveling, they're not renting cars. And if they're not renting cars, what do they do with those fleets? You know, especially considering the fact the secondary market for cars right now is not exactly uh, exploding. Well, you know, that's another really interesting one, Peter, because the rental car companies have lost a lot of business to Uber and Lyft. And I think it's I think it's ride sharing that may take the biggest hit on on this. Uh, it may be that people just don't have the appetite uh, to get into a stranger's car. Um, you get with with a with a rental car, um, you know, much like a hotel room. Presumably, if it's been cleaned, you you get it to yourself. You're not sharing it with anybody, and people may have more comfort with that than uh, we saw the. 
you know, just explosive growth with um, Uber and Lyft. And, um, you know, that may be uh, the readjustment that um, uh, that may even save some rental car companies. What I've also seen, and you may this may be exactly be proving your point, is that rental car pricing uh, uh, on daily rates has gone very high. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you know, even um, I think public transportation has something to do with that, too. Uh, the, the people, you know, you get to a city, you don't want to ride the subway or the streetcar or whatever there would be. Um, you're going to you're going to uh, get your own car, drive yourself. Uh, you can lock it up. Uh, you don't have to deal with anybody else. You can park it. Um, and uh, and and it is a safe environment. OK, last but not least, as we're in the Christmas season, it's gift giving time. Uh, let's talk about the gift of frequent flyer miles. A lot of people sitting around on a lot of unredeemed miles. The airlines have a lot of excess capacity right now, at least through the second quarter of next year. Uh, are you saying this is a good time for people to redeem their miles? Yeah, I think it's going to be a great time for people to redeem their miles. I think I think airlines, um, they're, they're going to want to get capacity back in the air. And, and they'll do that any way they can. I think they, they see this as an opportunity to get people traveling again, if they can get them traveling again on miles and use up a lot of um, those miles that are out there, uh, that's going to be perfectly fine um, with airlines. And they're just going to be a lot of empty seats. Yeah. And so why not get people back in the habit of traveling? Their first trip or two may be on miles, but uh, you know, if it works out well, then they'll start buying tickets after that. My thanks to Scott. Countries shut down, countries reopen, and then those same countries may be shutting down again. That's Europe right now, bordering on a Charles Dickens novel. To help us navigate through all of this, we call upon Simon Calder, the senior travel editor for The Independent in London. One of the things we're trying to celebrate is the end of 2020, a year that can't end fast enough. But of course, in the process, we want to remember those who worked so hard as frontline people, as first responders, as aid givers, as rescuers, to even get us to where we are now, and of course, to remember with love and fondness those we've lost. And as we prepare for 2021, I thought it'd be a good idea to talk to some of our regulars to get their fix on what they're hoping for, what's in their Christmas wish list for either giving to us or something they'd like to receive in the world of travel for 2021. So who better to talk to you about that than the senior travel editor for The Independent in London, Simon Calder. How are you, sir? Uh, great to talk to you. Crikey, another 10 days and it will all be over, Peter. And I think uh, probably like 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 me, you and your lovely listeners can barely wait to uh, say goodbye to 2020 and to start a new year with some, some hope, some dreams, some inspiration. Yeah, and by the way, if, uh, normally I will be going over to London. Uh, I'm not coming over this year because I can't get there, right? I know. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's extraordinary. And, and luckily, I was so glad. Uh, I, I don't know if this is the same for you. It's not it's not kind of one of those things. Where were you when you heard about COVID-19? Because it was kind of a slow, slow burn. Um, but but what was the last great trip you did before everything closed down? And I'm just looking back to uh, February. Fantastic. I was over in Salt Lake City, uh, went down to Long Beach, um, up to Victorville to have a look at the aviation graveyard across the Hoover oh, that, Dam. Vegas. I recommend. I recommend everybody should go to Victorville. If you've never been to Victorville, it's the former George Air Force Base. It's wild, especially mm. now because airlines aren't just parking planes; yeah. they're retiring them. 
And that that airport right now is loaded with later generation aircraft. I mean, you've got A380s up there from Qantas. You've got, uh, you've got, you know, A330s and A340s. And you've got, of course, the Boeing 747s that British Airways just retired, all 31 of them. It's crazy. I mean, I've I've always thought that if I wanted to shoot a great murder chase scene, I'd want to do it there. As people yes. are ducking under wings and around tailpipes and landing gears, it's it's crazy. Yeah, sure, and it's a fantastic spectator sport, and you can very safely and very legally um, kind of gaze through the wire at these extraordinary things, and just 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 know that they spent that that their lives ferrying millions of people in safety. Uh, in, in just just to connect people, which of course we've been missing so much. Anyway, from there I flew across to uh, uh, from Vegas. Actually, flew across to the Palm Beaches to Florida. Always you know, for years I've been going to Florida for for the winter. Um, I desperately hope I'll be able to get there in 2021. But the signs aren't aren't too encouraging at the moment, and it's all about that test. It's all about that vaccine. What we're going to need to be um, uh persona grata i think the legal term is um people who who um host nations are comfortable with receiving and of course even airlines Qantas have been saying uh yeah you're probably going to need to have a vaccine before you oh yeah let's let's talk about that here's Qantas, which has essentially grounded their entire fleet with an occasional flight to nowhere uh Qantas basically saying okay when we do start flying which may not be until may of next year they're saying we're not letting anybody on unless you've been vaccinated. They're actually yeah, and, making that a requirement now. And, and we, I think we're going to see quite a lot of that. And, of course, the argument uh, around the world is, OK, well, of course, it, naturally, we want the vaccine to go to the people who, who most need it uh, to, to have the maximum value. But uh, there is going to come a point at which... It's going to be a question of um, Mr. Greenberg. Uh, we'd, of course, love to fly you to London, but um, uh, can we check your certificate? And there is going to be some some kind of slightly, slightly alarming uh, issue whereby your passport will be linked electronically to a database where it says, yes, Mr. Peter Greenberg had this vaccination of this type on this date. And therefore, he is um, he's good to go. And and for me, it might say, well, he tested negative on a PCR test uh, three weeks ago. Um, and and it, it's going to be kind of an awful lot of data held about us. But given the choice between surrendering that data and not traveling, I know which I would choose. But, you know, forgetting the vaccine for just a minute, what I'm hoping for is that the technology will allow I've talked about this for the last six months on the show for rapid response, truly rapid response, under 45 seconds, biometric, widespread, reliable testing where you can get zapped at every touch point of your trip. Yeah. Whether it's the grocery store or the movie theater or the restaurant or the hotel or the cruise ship. And you will know and they will know within 45 seconds if you're negative or positive. And the only thing you have to do at that point is to build in the infrastructure so that if you do test positive, they can put you in a secure room or in a secure area to treat you without, you know, basically messing up everybody else's experience <laughs> and life can go on. I think that's going to go a long way to building up the confidence for people to want to travel again, even more importantly than the vaccine, because we have a trust issue here. 
We have yeah, a serious do, trust do. issue. You know, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that one third of the American public, when the vaccine becomes scalable and available, will say, ah, I don't want to go. I don't want to do it because they don't trust it. And then, you know, the second third is going to watch and the third third is going to watch. It's not going to be done overnight. This is not one of those 24-minute sitcoms where you get the girl at the end and the credit rolls. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit different than that. And so I think what's going, to be, what's going to supersede the actual efficacy of the vaccine is going to be that widespread testing first. Yeah, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And of course, if you can, if, you, if your testing is that sophisticated, then suddenly that unlocks everything. And it's not as though the vaccine, even if, if even if everybody was prepared to take it, it's not as though it gets parachuted into every every uh, neighborhood of every city, every small town around the world and we all get uh, jabbed. I mean, just at the rate that the UK is looking at, it's going to be well into 2022 where even if everybody says, yep, I'm, I'm going to take that jab, uh, people will, will be, everyone will have been um, uh, vaccinated. So uh, we, we have well, you a know lot what that means? You know what that means? That means whether you're vaccinated or not, we're probably still going to be wearing masks for at uh, least the next 18 months, no matter what you well, say. Well, yeah, look, look, Peter, I mean, we've become so accustomed to it. And uh, yeah, when I'm watching TV... <laughs> Quite often, I suddenly find myself thinking, well, hang on, they're not wearing masks. Now, we have become accustomed to it. We will become unaccustomed to it, I'm hoping and believing. But ultimately, do you want to be in Thailand and you've got to wear a mask or would you rather stay home? I, I know which I would choose. So I think most people are going to be good about it. But, but there's also a whole constituency of travellers who are just going to say, Actually, I, I sat it out during 2020. I'm probably going to sit it out during 2021 until I'm convinced there's no no danger to me, um, which actually for the rest of us makes it quite a good year to be a traveler. <laughs> it does. But you know what the travel industry is slowly doing, and I give them credit for this, is they're embracing a new definition of what we call destination assurance. So that they're basically going to say to you, if you come here, we got you covered. If you come here, we're carrying insurance for you. Not just insurance to hospitalize you here, but to medically evacuate you and repatriate you back to the doctor and medical facility of your choice in your home country. Letting people know that they're not going to get somewhere and get stuck and can't get home. Or from a financial point of view, uh, this is a New Year's wish for me, that if somebody books a trip, whether it's an airline, a hotel, a cruise line, a tour operator, a, a safari guy, that if the trip is canceled through no fault of their own, they get their money back and not a voucher. Uh, yeah. People, the, the ill will that was engendered uh, yeah. by the behavior of so many travel providers who may not have had a choice, by the way, doesn't matter. That ill will is keeping a lot of people on the sidelines who would otherwise be jumping at the chance to go traveling tomorrow. Oh, sure. And uh, it, it is about trust. It's about, uh, I mean, that there were so many stories, particularly, goodness, the cruise ships that were, um, sailing thousands of miles trying to find any port that would let them in. It was it was shocking um, with with cases of, of coronavirus spreading across the ship. Uh, awful circumstances for people to be in, besides, of course, the many individual tragedies. Um, and uh, people just look at that and think, well, I, why would I ever get on a cruise ship? Why would I ever go on vacation? I don't want to be stuck on the wrong side exactly. of someone else's lockdown. 
We're talking to Simon Calder, the senior travel editor for The Independent in London. Simon, one thing we now know we're going to see in 2021 is a new presidential administration in Washington <laughs> as of yeah. January 20th, 21. Yeah. Um, let's not get political here, but let's talk about what a new uh, administration under Joe Biden might do in terms of the travel process itself. I'm hearing he's going to basically knock down the uh, the boundaries of, of uh, the ban on people traveling to the United States. That, that applies to about 36 countries right now. Uh, the Muslim ban might be lifted. Uh, you know, the State Department might start reviewing their level three and four uh, State Department advisors, which are painted with such a broad brush as to scare just about anybody. Uh, I would think that's going to happen pretty soon. Yeah, uh, I remember exactly where I was in November 2016 when the results of the uh, presidential election in that year came in. And to, I think, an awful lot of people's great surprise, um, uh, Donald J. Trump won. And, uh, of course, um, the Democrats duly conceded. And I was at the World Travel Market in London. The, the I was big, there, too. I yeah. was there, too. <laughs> of course you were, actually. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I, I remember, I remember getting back to my room at midnight, because midnight London time was when the polls closed in New York. Of course, And yes. turning on CNN. And by 2 o'clock in the morning, I was like, did that really happen? Mm. Because nobody expected it to happen. I mean, nobody. And uh, it's, let's, let's put it this way. It's been an interesting four years. We've learned a lot. Hopefully we've, we've applied those lessons. And not to get political, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, what, an, what any new administration is going to do, but especially one right now that's got so many different challenges about how the United States is viewed on the world stage with or without the pandemic, but especially leadership that's needed in terms of getting management issues taken care of on this virus. Sure. Um, but I, I, th I think informing all this will be the fact that uh, uh, Joe Biden has, during his extraordinarily long um, uh, career in politics, um, you know, he has been an internationalist. He appreciates the benefits of inclusiveness, of, of connecting people, of bringing uh, the world together. And that includes um, uh, allowing people from from countries right across the world and maybe even from the UK uh, traveling uh, to, to, to the US as actually we've been desperate to do uh, for pretty much the whole of uh, 2020. So I'm I, I, I love the theater of a presidential inauguration. I'm not going to be in Washington uh, for the event, uh, but I hope to be there quite quite soon afterwards. Washington for the rest of the world, Peter, is such a, a, a dramatic, spectacular, beautiful, friendly and meaningful place. And I'm looking forward uh, uh, to um, exploring the, the great uh, tribute to democracy that, uh, that, that, that is contained in Washington, D.C. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you, Simon, that uh, if truth be told, about one month from today, uh, this show will be in Washington, D.C. We will oh. be broadcasting. Uh, from the inauguration. So uh, it'll be interesting to see that, that whatever happens, happens. You know, what happens in Washington every four years, it's either an unbelievable blinding snowstorm or it's, or it's, <laughs> it's, so, it's so wonderful in terms of the weather that the, the new president walks up and down Constitution yeah. Avenue. It's, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens.
it, it certainly will. And uh, clearly, I must say, there's an awful lot of uh, people involved in travel, whether uh, as, as consumers, whether as providers in the UK, who are just absolutely desperate to get back. And every time I go to Washington, I would do something new. Um, I, I want to go to the Cold War Museum in Warrington, Virginia, Warrington, Virginia, about an hour uh, west of um, of DC, I understand, to find out about how the Cold War played out. Um, it's uh, that there's so much to see. There's so many opportunities there, and that's why it's just been for, for generations. The US has been part of the vacation experience for for the UK specifically and Europeans more particularly. So we're desperate to get back, and we're desperate to welcome Americans to the UK to the rest of the world um it's uh, i know you've got a huge amount of wonders within your frontiers but um we, we do miss you and we want you back well i will tell you this simon here's a little news bulletin for you there's another cold war museum it's actually in los what? angeles and nobody no. knows it there is a cold war <laughs> museum in los angeles it's dedicated to east berlin and and the fall of the wall. It's uh, it's actually in West LA, actually in Cul- near Culver City, actually, and yeah. it's well worth the visit. Things in there you never knew about, and just amazing <laughs> artifacts and uh, and trinkets from the old days of uh, of you know the East Germans. It's crazy stuff, absolutely ah. crazy stuff. So Simon Calder, senior travel editor for the Independent. Let me be the first to welcome you. Welcome you to wish you a very early Merry Christmas, uh, which will happen in about a week. And uh, hopefully, I'll get a chance to see you on your end of the pond uh, very early next year, because uh, that is a way overdue trip for me. My thanks to Simon. When it comes to food and restaurants, the numbers aren't pretty. More than 100,000 restaurants in the U.S. alone have closed and may never reopen. Ruth Reichel has a lot to say about this with a surprising suggestion. There may, in fact, be an unexpected silver lining in all of this sadness. You know, I'm born and raised in New York. We've lost something like 1,400 restaurants that may never reopen. It's been a very tough time around the rest of the United States. Uh, you know, airlines might have gotten bailed out, but there is no federal bailout for, for restaurants or hotels uh, or many other industries that are so integral to, uh, to the travel experience. Uh, and my next guest knows a lot about that. I first met her, see if she remembers this. I first met her when she was running a restaurant in San Francisco and I was working for Newsweek as the, as the West Coast correspondent. Then she became the, the restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times and then uh, for, uh, for the New York Times. So obviously she couldn't hold a job. Um, <laughs> and if I wanted to know what was going on, I checked out everything that Ruth Reichel wrote. Ruth, come, welcome back to the show. Um, I have no memory of meeting you in San Francisco. I have to say that. Yep, yep. It's, uh, in fact, I was doing something with, with Alice Waters and Shea Panisse over in Berkeley, and that's probably where we met somewhere around there at the time. But, you know, that's a long time ago. That's a long time ago, yes. I know. But now let's, let's, let's rock it up to current events. You know, you heard my introduction. It's been a very tough year, one that we hope couldn't end fast enough. Uh, and, you know, we're looking around at all the spiking cases in, in the United States where you're seeing individual cities or states uh, going to, you know, curfews and mandatory shutdowns of indoor and outdoor dining uh, at, at a time when it couldn't even be worse, right, the holidays. Uh, do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Well, I do, but I mean, there's going to be a lot of pain before we get to that light. I mean, there there are restaurants that we all have loved for many years that will never see the light of day again. 
the upside of this, if there is an upside, is one, um, chefs and restaurateurs have pulled together in an extraordinary way and I think shown us how important they are to the lifeblood of our communities. I mean, they've fed frontline workers, they've fed the hungry, they've done their best to keep going for their employees. Um, they have shown extraordinary versatility. Um, you know, chefs have done everything they possibly could to keep their farmers, their fishermen, their suppliers, and, um, you know, the many people who needed the paycheck working at, for many of them, great personal expense. Um, and I think the upside is, one, we all desperately miss restaurants and have realized how much they matter to us. And two, at the on the other side of this, one of the big problems for restaurants has been ridiculous rents. Um, you know, I once wrote a piece when I was at the New York Times saying that you had to think about when you went out to eat that you weren't actually paying for the food. You were actually renting your space at the table because that's what a big chunk of the restaurant dollar the landlords were taking. And that's there are going to be hundreds, thousands of empty restaurants that are fully equipped that landlords are going to be, you know, eager to rent to um, young chefs who couldn't have afforded them before. And I think we're going to see an extraordinary surge of creativity. Um, one of the other things that's really happened for restaurants, I've been working on this documentary about how this pandemic is changing the way we eat and changing the entire food system. And one of the one chef that I speak to regularly told me that he thought at the end of this, the whole way kitchens are organized is going to be changed because he said that from the moment the pandemic hit, they changed how the the kitchen in the restaurant worked. And he said everybody sort of did everything themselves. They cleaned up after themselves and the entire hierarchy went away. He said it was extraordinary how in his 35 years of being a chef, he had never seen such a compatible kitchen. You know, he said, wow. in nine months, I have not heard a raised voice. We've been speaking with the, I'll say it again, the legendary Ruth Reichel, honored with six James Beard Awards, I might add. You're very much like me. You love to travel. I know you do. And you love to travel in, in search of great food experiences for all sorts of, of commendable reasons. We're not doing that now. And, you know, it's one thing to say we have a favorite restaurant in our neighborhood that may not be reopening or, or just a staple of a place that we love to hang out at. It's another thing to talk about all the destinations we've been in the world where they're having a similar experience and those restaurants are closing. What does it mean about travel coming into 2021 when we get when we begin to travel again? Where are we going to find those experiences? Well, you know, a lot of other countries have done better than we have in supporting their restaurants. So, um, you know, I am counting on restaurants I want to go to all over the world being open. And I, you know, I, I live in upstate New York. I have not even been in New York City since March. Um, I haven't been more than 20 miles from my house. I am dying to hit the road, and I think I am not alone in that. I mean, I think, you know, once there's a vaccine and we all feel like we can travel, we're all going to go out and revel in eating, you know, the food of all these other countries. And Okay, so Ruth, let's do this. It's Christmas. Let's get your wish list out. 
assuming I gave you the green light to travel right now, what's the first place you'd go and what's the first place you'd eat? Well, oh, God, that's so hard because there are about a thousand places I want to go and eat. But um, probably I would go to Paris, and the first place I would go is Huitre Regis, a little oyster bar that I love there. Um, and then I would just, you know, start eating everything in sight. But from there, I would probably go to Copenhagen, one of my favorite restaurant cities in the entire world. Not um, just for Noma, right? Not just for Noma. There are, you know, for, you know, all their great Mexican restaurants, there is the greatest bakery, heart bakery, that um, oh, just eating breakfast there is one of the great joys of life. Um, you know, there are, there are so many fantastic restaurants there. Um, then I want to go to Tokyo. I want to go to, to Taipei. Um, I want to go to San Sebastian. Um, I want to go back to Mexico City, one of the great restaurant cities of the world. Um, I want to go back to Melbourne, another you know fantastic restaurant city. I mean, I, I when when we can travel again, uh, I. I will probably not stop traveling for a year. You'll be the one running running over me to get on the plane. That's exactly <laughs> right. I just can't wait. And um, I, you know, I want I want to go to Tijuana and eat the great agua chili at Marisco's Ruben. That uh, that alone just gets me very excited. <laughs> Don't hold back, Ruth. Keep going. Oh, God, um, the best sushi I have ever had in my life was in Tokyo, um, and, um, you know, it's it's seven seats, um, so I'm not going to tell you the name of it. Because, oh, come on. Um, I actually am not going to tell you the name of it because I've just lost it, um, <laughs> for which I apologize. It, it, is, it, it is not um, uh, Shiro. Um, but, um, I, I, you know, you just think about the food of the world and um, how much traveling and eating is a way of absorbing a culture and connecting to a culture and connecting to the people in that culture. And it, for me, it's so much not about fancy restaurants, you know. It's, it's and there's about, one more thing. And there's one more thing. It's the food, it's the culture, and there's another C word too. It's the conversation. It's the social gathering that allows you over food to find common ground. Well, and of course, that's the, that's the other thing. You know, I have so missed cooking for my friends because I haven't done that for nine months either. Uh, and, you know, that ultimately is the thing that matters most about food is how much it makes us, um, you know, sit down and actually pay attention to one another and relax and have the kind of conversations you only have over a great meal. So what you're really saying, Ruth, is takeout has its limitations. Absolutely. It does indeed. <laughs> um, and I, you know, at Christmas time, you know, there's just nothing you want more than to have, you know, a meal with all the people you love best sitting around your own table. And um, that is not takeout for two in, in your apartment. No, 
Not even close. And something tells me you go way beyond the uh, the honey glazed ham. Something tells me you do. I just I just had a lucky guess. Um, you you can count on that. <laughs> <laughs> my thanks to Ruth, to Simon Calder, and to Scott McCartney, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. I wish you all the happiest of holidays, and yes, an even happier New Year. For conversations with the leaders in travel and answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and there's a lot of it, just visit petergreenberg.com. If you like Eye on Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.